house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast hanging by a moment here with you, Susan Sarandon. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my favorite disco diva and penicillin mule, Joe Reed. If you could read my mind, Chris, while I was watching the film 54, what a tale my thoughts would tell. Oh my goodness, I'm sure. I, it, we'll get into it. But we should say off the top, and I didn't even think about my opening joke until just now, how maybe that wouldn't have made sense to you. Though I'm sure it's still there. We watched different versions of this movie. We did. And I, I don't I think the I realized which I'd never seen, and I assume you have because you watched the director's cut. I saw the theatrical, but like a long time ago. And yeah. yes, I watched the director's cut, and I don't think I realized until I started like reading up on all of the stuff that it's like, like not half only of it is a different movie. Yeah, not only does the director's cut add like thirty to forty-five minutes worth of new footage, it also took out all of the additional footage that was shot for the theatrical cut. So right. like, cause like the, the time discrepancy between the two isn't that much. The director's cut doesn't end up being that much longer than the theatrical, but it's adds so much and it takes away a bunch. So we'll, it'll be an interesting discussion as we sort of like talk each other through what we saw and what we didn't. Like, I and assume I that like, I want to go back and watch this and I'm glad that we both watched a different version me too. because that's also what we did for our Alexander episode where that's we had right. David Sims on and I'm pretty sure all three of us watched a different version of the movie. But I think what the, I think with Alexander, it was a matter of, do you have the shortcut, the cut that added some stuff or the cut that added some more stuff? And I think mm-hmm. that it, like, it was just a matter of more or more or more. Whereas this, it's just like more and less. So mm-hmm. I think bo- our movies both ended very differently. And I, my assumption is that like anything in the director's cut that had anything to do with like queerness on Shane's part was cut out um which I do because I like I would have remembered that from watching 54 theatrically because one of my main objectives in watching the theatrical cut of 54 when I was 18 years old was watching as much of Ryan Phillippe as I could and like kind of Phillippe with a dude 
see, and I would have really remembered that, and I sure didn't see it when I initially saw that movie. This movie does have, which I appreciate on several levels, but it has that, um, what I sort of uh, term as like the Mel Gibson and Lethal Weapon butt shot, where it's like no actual reason like storyline wise for this shot of him like walking from the bed to the bathroom and just sort of just like that is in the theatrical cut it's definitely in the theatrical cut because i do remember that um in the hierarchy of uh ryan Phillippe's ass on screen i definitely think it's the bottom tier ryan Phillippe ass on screen i don't think anybody had a sexual awakening to that shot of his butt like they did and say i know what you did last summer he doesn't show his butt and and i know what you did last summer okay we're gonna like let's have this conversation now because it's a very important conversation he doesn't show his butt no, I feel he like that's just such a transformative scene that, for a lot of gay people that like there's so much projection. I think you've Mandela affected his butt into that movie. What he Ryan Phillippe. Okay, so here's how it goes. Ryan Phillippe. God, this is going to be so pervy, but whatever. Ryan Phillippe as a thing. I think the audience can relate. Essentially happened with I Know What You Did Last Summer. Like that was sort of like the beginning of it. So Ryan Phillippe and I Know What You Did Last Summer is like iconic two sort of looks one of which is like he's in a wife beater for most of the movie and it's like and he also has like weirdly like a cast on his hand i think for for a bunch of the movie like the back half he breaks his arm when i think the killer is trying to taunt him or something right right um but then he's also i think his death scene is a locker room scene right where it's just like ryan Phillippe in a towel and like his like perfect torso or whatever and so that's I maybe remember yeah. none of the specifics about this movie, just like the general. The only ones who survive, on. the only ones who survive the first one are Jennifer Love Hewitt and Freddie Prince Jr. And then they're both back right. for the second one. And I think they both also survived the second one. The second one being the wildest shit, not a good movie, but it does end with the dad from Gossip Girl turning out to be the villain whose name was Ben Hansen. And it turns out that he, or no, um, Will, sorry, Will Benson. And it turns out that he is the son of Ben, the killer in the first one. So he's just like, Ben's my name son. is Will Benson. Ben's son? Tell me why. Why? Come on, Jules, think about it. You'll get it. Will Benson? Ben's son. That's the greatest thing ever. It is. So the, the, the mere concept of that movie absolutely falls apart in the last half hour when they reveal all of the dumb shit that, like, you that have he to he engineered a radio contest to win to get them to whatever, the Bahamas, and uh, murder them. It's so fantastic. And that they never took a geography course. <laughs> right, because they got the question wrong. That was the whole thing, right? Where... Uh, and, and, yeah, they say yeah. Rio, right? When the question, the, the what's question the capital is, of Brazil? And they say yes. Rio, and that's not right. Yeah, right, Correct. exactly. It's it's an indictment of uh, American higher education and uh, the fact that we let these children pass through school thinking they know shit when they don't. Anyway, um, so after I know what you did last summer, then comes the great year of 1998, where Ryan Phillippe is in both 54 and Cruel Intentions. I will take uh, issue with the fact the butt shot in this movie is a good butt shot. He has a good butt. Like his not his butt's never done not look good. Oh, it's like, not it's, a bad one, but I'm it's just a like, really I'm good saying. And no you one... get to see it closer up. I think the beauty of the butt shot in Cruel Intentions is that it's f- 
you see it from far enough away because you're in like Reese Witherspoon's perspective. She's in the pool and he's sort of like over in the like changing area and she can yeah, see him. Yeah, it's a cutaway too. So it's a surprise. Like, Yeah, it's a surprise. And I think because it's far away, you have to like constant like you can passively watch the butt shot in 54 and just be like it's a butt like, oh, look at this. We'll just, you know he's walking to the bathroom it's a butt um you really have to want it to like uh to make the cruel intentions butt shot as miraculous as it is and we all did want it so i feel like as a culture we all came together and no pun intended and realized that that was a moment we were all going to hold on to no pun intended I feel like we need to just maybe have a side segment every episode where we both become Tina Belcher. But. And uh, yeah. just focus on butts. Tina Belcher is the most relatable character in fiction, and that is why. Um, yes. So that was my uh, the, the height of my interest in 54 in 1998. And as the years have passed now, I'm like, you were, you were sort of fascinated by these stories of just like, there's so much cut footage from 54. Cause like watching the theatrical cut, it's like, you get the fact that like, Oh, there's homoeroticism going around here. So like the idea that there was this cut footage of uh, like queer scenes doesn't surprise you because it's just like, yeah, of course there right. is. Like it seemed implausible it's that it wasn't in like the movie to begin with. It's accepted disco culture of gayness. That is like Truman Capote and Andy Warhol in the background, but not yes. like, dudes getting it on well and it's and it's part of the central issue with 54 a movie that i don't fully hate but like doesn't work the way it should yeah and that's terrible um it has a little bit of the stonewall problem although not to the extent that stonewall does but it does decide to take you into this world of you know, disco and drugs and queerness and celebrity and all this sort of stuff and make you put you in the perspective of this white kid from Jersey who is like the most like mask version of this. And like, it's different Stonewall. It was telling this like, you know, queer POC uh, drag queen trans people story through the most (laughs) cisgender mask sort of, iowa boy possible this at least the story of studio 54 while rooted absolutely in queerness and blackness and disco and all this sort of you know what was happening in that scene in new york at the time the kind of miracle of studio 54 was that it pulled in everybody that like the the sort of floor show of studio 54 was that it was like gay people and straight people and celebrities and normies. And, you know, it it sort of hit the cross section of everything. And that's what made it a phenomenon. So, mm-hmm. but it still is a weird entry point into the movie. And like, much as I do love Ryan Phillippe in a lot of things, he's not the most charismatic person to follow through all of this. I think most yeah, of the like central this characters Ryan are not. Phillippe is he's more charismatic when he's playing a dick. And like, yes, it's like, you're right about the Stonewall comparison though. It's like not as problematic right. of subject matter as like Stonewall explicitly is to right. be doing this, but it's like, it's a very um, boring person's coming of age 
uh, narrative in an interesting surrounding. And I don't think Ryan Phillippe is that type of charismatic actor at this time to make that interesting. He would have been good in almost any of the other roles. Like, even in the Breckenmeyer role, although it would be tough to fit Ryan Phillippe for being, like... um, it would be tough to look at Ryan Phillippe and just be like, yeah, no one's giving him the time of day like they are with Breckenmeyer. So like that I get. But I mean, Breckenmeyer kind of made no sense in this role whatsoever. Like he's we're supposed to believe he's married to Salma Hayek, which sure. Um, but I think I do think that's part of I think that's a feature in that like. Yeah. Yeah. We're supposed to look at this couple and be like him with her a little bit. And because he has this sort of inferiority complex. But I do think, like, mostly I think Breckenmeyer was cast because he's short. I think the, the character description was yeah, just yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. we want somebody too short to be a bartender. And, which I love that that too, that, like, bartenders were essentially cast as the way you would cast models. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, fair. And again, walk into many a gay bar these days, and it seems not too much has changed. But, um yeah. I definitely, like, especially the bartender thing, like, the ethos of bartender disco culture and, like, in disco club culture, like, was way more fascinating to me. Like, I kept, I I was fine with this movie. I don't think it's a disaster by any means, but, like, I kept wanting it to be other movies. Like, I wanted the Magic Mike version of the 54 bartenders, or I wanted the Steve Bell character to, like, I want the Goodfellas version of his movie. Right. Yeah, I think... I don't think Mike Myers is doing a bad job, but he's not asked to do... I don't think he's asked to do enough to give you enough different shades of steve in this movie like steve is like zonked out on quaaludes for 90 percent of this movie right like he's just heavy lidded and like barely coherent for like a good 85 90 percent of this movie and i think the performance that myers is giving makes me wish that we had been able to see more of steve you know and Uh more of you know what what he's doing i don't necessarily maybe don't necessarily want a steve rubel biopic but like as biopics go, I you know I've had seen you know heard of worse ideas. You kind of want the version of the fifty four movie that is more of a crime movie that right. like you do at least get a little bit more of him and his eccentricity and like the ways what? that he was gross and awful. What's weird is the fifty four ends up being too close to what. The Last Days of Disco is doing that same year, except The Last Days of Disco is looking at the Studio 54 phenomenon from the perspective of it got taken over by, you know, white yuppie types and this is how it ended. Like, this is why mm-hmm. it died. And Studio 54 is not taking that perspective. Studio 54 just ends up like watering down this, you know, incredible moment in time into something that's less than what it was because it decides to filter it through this like handful of fairly uninteresting characters like god knows i love salma hayek but like her character's not super interesting in this movie either yeah like she's since said like why did i take that movie um yeah i also think last days of disco does the whole coming of age thing better too because like the death of disco culture is also very emblematic in that movie of like the point in your life in your 20s where you 
basically become an adult and you say goodbye to your shitty friends and like yeah. the other thing i was sort of struck by watching 54 now as opposed to watching 54 when i was 18 years old is so much and also watching the 54 behind the music which i also did over the weekend we'll um, talk about 54 nostalgia oh for sure um but so much of what was what people sort of breathlessly talk about in terms of the phenomenon of Studio 54, and not all of it, like some of it was genuinely once in a lifetime, never before would seen again. And mostly that is to do with the commingling of A-list celebrities with just like club kids and, you know, people out at the disco on a Saturday night or whatever. But all this stuff of just like the bartenders were in like short shorts and nothing else. And, you know, People were doing drugs and people were having sex and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, now that I've been to gay bars, that doesn't scandalize me, like, nearly as much. Like, the idea that, like, people would, like, duck off and, like, have sex in the back. I'm just like, well, yeah, the cock exists. Like, that's sort of, you know, a thing. Or, like, you walk into any gay bar and you see how the bartenders are dressed and you're just, just like, oh, okay, yeah, like, I've been to boxers. Like, I get, like, that whole deal, too. Like, it's... um and but it's but the point of it is that like allowing straight culture into that world like that's the combustible mix right where it's all of a sudden it's just like that fusion of all of it was i imagine like a huge i don't know like revelation or something like that i don't you know do you get what i'm saying dang- oh i totally do that it's like the whole um uh, the the queer aspect is like diminished now for you as a viewer. I also think like, and this is maybe one of the flaws for the movie and it sounds um, shallow, but like, it's one of the things that I think is genuinely missing from the movie that like is important. If you're talking about like the ethos of studio 54, it's the celebrity element. Like, yes, yes. Who are the celebrities that they mention in this movie? They mention uh, Grace well, Kelly most prominently because grace kelly is the um that's the person that shane is sort of uh assigned to on that last new year's eve party and also uh they mentioned early on that both of his sisters were named after grace kelly because their mother uh idolized her so much but it's like you don't it doesn't feel like at any minute liza minnelli could show up in this movie or Mick right. Jagger could show up. In we this see movie. Truman Capote for a second. We see Andy Warhol. We see someone who I assume is supposed to be an analog for Halston, but I'm not fully sure. Right. That is a thing. But no, you're right. And it's so funny because I'm going through. There's no through, Grace Jones in this movie. No, that's wild that there's no, or at least like that there's never a point where like somebody looks over in a corner and sees somebody who looks a lot like Grace Jones. And it's not like you would have pissed off those celebrities because like right. as we'll get into like they've all talked studio about 54 it. nostalgia was a thing in the late 90s and everybody talked 100%. about it. we all know who did went and did drugs there like so i'm looking through the imdb cast list for this movie and there is a bajillion cameos from people who were from that era and also from people who weren't that i just didn't recognize cheryl crow is in this movie cindy crawford's in this movie heidi klum uh, Veronica Webb, Frederick Vanderwall, uh, Beverly Johnson, Peter Bogdanovich, Art Garfunkel, uh, Lorna Luft, 
Like the and if you I can just... watch the movie and not notice that they're there, I think that speaks hugely to how this movie gets like celebrity wrong. Yeah. Oh, that was Mary McCormick as the girl, the wife who couldn't get in on New Year's Eve when her husband did. I thought so. Sorry, I'm just going through this uh, this cast <laughs> list. But yeah, I think I think there are so many other perspectives. Either this had to like okay. A couple versions of this movie I would like better. One, as I said, sort of like the Steve Rubell centric one. Second, do like do the Nashville of Studio Fifty Four, and just do a huge wide canvas of as many different characters and types of characters and little like subcultures that were going on in it as possible. I think that would have been a really fascinating way to do it. I think the Disco Dottie centric version of this movie also would have been kind of fascinating on like a smaller scale, like do the like, hello, my name is Doris version of this, but it's Disco Dottie. See, I would make Disco Dottie be the her smell version of this movie. Also that I would absolutely do that. Um, I think all of it, like, clearly, like, you're not going to be able to do the Nashville version of this with uh, writer-director Mark Christopher, who, his credits, did you look up his credits? Yeah. Nothing before or after this, except for one of the, uh, or a couple of them, actually, a couple segments from the Boy's Life movies, which, if right. you have never heard of Boy's Life as a series, it was essentially like softcore twink porn that like had the sheen of like had the barest minimal like just crossed the the threshold of actual movie to be like considered like you would see it in when i was on like netflix and i was like netflix um dvd mailings you would be able to get like boys life movies there and you couldn't get like legit porn there but like it just crossed that threshold of being like uh, you know, not actual pornography, but it was softcore porn. Or it's like, like it was... the gay movies that you could get that were explicitly gay were yes. also like, I don't want to say puerile, but de- definitely wanting you to think that there could be uh, uh, pornographic material. This one, Boy's Life was definitely like the smuttier one, but what was the other um, sort of more comedic uh, um Hold on a second. I'm trying to think of the, it, the series out. of movies. Yes, thank you. I was going to have to look it up. Yes, Eating Out was sort of boy's life, but with like nominally more plot and uh, supposedly funny, but it like never was. I, I I always refused. Sorry. You well you okay? Yes. I think by the time, though, that you were probably watching that stuff, you probably had a little bit more choice. I feel like we were so starved for sure. choice back then. Like, there was just nothing to watch. I don't know. I don't know. I'm making excuses That was readily, uh, like, available because so many, like, queer things uh, got buried. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was a moment like, in time. I, I, have, like, I should look yeah, that up and see who was in the Boys Life movies. Hold on one second. Because it was like, you would get, like, um, that, like level of gay celebrity where it would be like um or eating out not in boy's life um where it's just like you recognized some of the names in those movies like jim vararos is in the first one who was a contestant on the first season of american idol he was the one who like famously like simon cowell was super mean to and like randy johnson almost or randy jackson almost fought him in that very early uh american idol season uh, who was in this? Ryan Carnes is in it. Who was? He's on General Hospital now, but he was on um, 
Desperate Housewives as the boyfriend to the gay son on the one Desperate Housewives movie. Like, there was at least, like, some sort of name value, which I think that all got superseded when, like, Ryan Murphy started making uh, television shows and casting that, like, cadre of gay celebrity where it was just like cheyenne jackson he's out like we're gonna cast him in things that kind of stuff we should also say mark christopher didn't make any more movies because he had such a bad experience making 54 and having the movie taken away from him fully taken away from him yeah we'll definitely get into the uh test screenings and the harvey scissor hands of it all and all that but let's get into the plot description, shall we? Can we? Let's I'll, do it. I'll yes. build us up a little bit. Once yeah. again, we're here to talk about the movie 54, written and directed by Mark Christopher, starring Ryan Phillippe, Mike Myers. We will definitely get into that. Brecken Meyer, Salma Hayek, Nev Campbell, Celia Ward, Ellen Albertini Dow. We will absolutely get into that. Queen, queen among queens. Uh, Heather Matarazzo, Skip Sudeth, Mark Ruffalo, a um, uh, a very Canadian tuxedoed Mark Can Ruffalo. I tell you the scream I let out when I saw Mark Ruffalo? I did not remember him being Wearing in multiple ca- Canadian tuxedos. In this oh movie. my god. And just like all, like the most like Elmer's glue pasted on uh, mustache. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> I, I fully never... later sans mustache like in a Scooby-Doo reveal of like... I was talking to my dad the other day about uh, You Can Count On Me because he was like, I saw this movie the other day with Laura Linney and she has the brother. I'm like, you can count on me? And he's just like, yeah. And it was like, that's my uh, my great dad compliment for a movie. He's just like, that was a weird movie. I'm like, yeah, that's how you know it was a good movie that you liked. Um, <laughs> um, but I think I even said, I was just like, before that movie, I nobody had ever seen Mark Ruffalo in anything. And I totally thought that was true. I totally thought I had never seen Mark Ruffalo in a movie before. You can count on me. I was wrong. It was this one. I also flipped out for Erica Alexander showing up. Love her. Oh my God. Love her so I, much. Again, a- I characters I wish this was about hates sitcoms love living single oh um, sure yeah she's living single is a great single. show um, yes. and I do not like sitcoms uh, further proven by the new the final season of Shit's Creek showing up and we started watching right. it and I'm like I don't want to watch this um, Erica Alexander also amazing in her one scene of Get Out oh my god I love that scene so much she's so funny she's so great in that oh my lord good call um but yeah, 54 opened August 28th, 1998. One week Down into to the my wire of its reshoots year. that shot in the summer. Indeed. Joseph, Indeed. are you ready to give a 60-second plot description for the movie 54? Sure. All right. So your 60-second plot description of the aforementioned movie 54 starts now. Picture it, Jersey City, 1970-something. Ryan Phillippe plays a sentient set of abs named Shane, and one night he and his friends ditch their local trash New Jersey disco and traverse the river into New York City to try and get into the illustrious and trendy Studio 54. Club owner Steve Rebell refuses Shane's friends, but tells Shane he can get in if he takes his shirt off, and for the good of all, Shane does, and thus enters the wonderland of sex and drugs and music and celebrity that is Studio 54. There he meets and befriends coach check girl Anita and busboy Greg, who are married, each with ambitions to become a famous pop star and a bartender, respect. 
respectively. Because he looks like Ryan Phillippe, Shane ends up with a bartender job that Greg wants and is dubbed Shane 54 by his homoerotic cohorts. Shane ends up becoming a boy toy for a wealthy and influential woman played by Celia Ward and one wealthy man. If you watch the director's cut, he ends up photographed for magazines, gets way too full of himself, does too many drugs, gets the clap, tries to fucking need it, gets punched by Greg, unsuccessfully romances soapstar Neff Campbell, watches the rap and granny die on the dance floor, and finally flees 54 for good just as the feds raid the place for tax evasion and the disco era metaphorically dies. And that's time. Ooh. Okay, so how does the movie end in the director's cut? Because the theatrical cut ends with the reopening of Studio 54. Right. And everybody has, except for Salma, whose hair is like, not like 80s Tina Turner, but like getting there. Getting right? there, yes. And then everyone else, Breckenmeyer and Ryan Phillippe included, have their late 90s crunchy hair. Yeah, it's like they're fully modern at that point. They're like fully but contemporary like, to 1998. You can absolutely tell that they couldn't get back into the actual Studio 54 to shoot. So it's like a backdrop of curtains with a tight close-up on Mike Myers as he delivers this sentimental monologue that I'm like, you, you shot this in uh, uh, well, the original, some random bar in Queens. The original film was shot in Toronto. Yes. Which is like... Of course. And then the reshoots... uh, Queen Neff Campbell will get into it. Right. The reshoots were shot in New York. So, yeah, the reshoots were definitely shot in wherever they, you know, wherever, whatever place they decided had, you know, tricked out to be Studio 54. And they were not in that same place in the new one. Yeah, the director's cut... No, they shot in the real Studio 54. Oh, did they actually? I don't think I knew Yeah, but you can tell that in the reshoots they did not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, In the director's cut... There's this like um framing scene where the beginning scene is the end scene. The very first thing you see is Shane uh shirtless walking down on New Year's Eve on a cold uh New York City street and has to like put on a garbage bag as a like shawl for warmth. Um, and then in the end scene, it's that same shot of him leaving after uh, as the place is getting raided and Greg finds him and he and Greg huddle together. And then Anita finds them and she's got this like big fabulous fur coat because she had just gotten uh, pulled away by Seal Ward to go meet with a record exec. So she then pulls the two of them in under her. It's very like Ramona get in my fur moment <laughs> um, as they like walk down the street, the three of them together. And that's the end of the movie. That's definitely in the theatrical cut, and there's like a half hour left of the movie. That's what, yeah. So that so definitely the happy a bunch ending. Of Nev Campbell stuff is in the reshoots because she is barely in the movie. She's in um, two until very late. Yeah, she's in like two or three scenes in the director's cut entirely. You see her like across the room, and then mm-hmm. he much later runs into her at the restaurant in New Jersey where they like actually like have a conversation. He kisses her in the parking lot. Then the next time we see her, she shows up on New Year's Eve with the uh, like Euro trashy guy who's hitting on Shane and wants him to come home with the two of them that later tonight. And Shane's all mm-hmm. disillusioned by bisexuality or whatever. And then at the very, very end, as they're walking down the street in their, uh, in their Ramona fur, um, she passes by in the limo and offers Shane a ride and he turns her down and that's the Okay, end of so he still does that still happens in the theatrical cut, but Anita's not there. It's just Anita Shane. might Yeah, Anita might not be there. I think no, I do think Anita is has shown up there by the end, by the time she rolls by. But anyway. 
Yeah. I was um, kind of for the first like hour and 15 minutes of the movie when Beth Campbell was literally just a woman in newspapers and across the room was thinking that it would be absolutely hilarious if that's all her performance is <laughs> when like she was all over the trailers and the poster oh, yeah. for this movie and like she's the with Reckon credit Meyer was nowhere to be seen and he's maybe <laughs> the second second lead most, yeah yeah he's maybe the second lead of the movie <laughs> yeah she gets the with credit it's with nev campbell and mike myers um mike mike myers getting obviously the like glamour and credit right because right. like if we're talking about this movie in oscar in any terms like it's absolutely mike myers it's the he's the only reason we'll why we're it. talking about this movie on this podcast is because yeah. he, they were definitely trying to position him for the uh comedic actor go serious oscar uh, slot in this one it was interesting to me one last thing on nev campbell because we really don't need to talk about her very much because she really isn't in it she's um, not in the movie that much though i do want to talk about her in relation to like the you okay uh, d- before we move on, I will just say yeah. the Nev Campbell thing. When I was not allowed to watch this movie as a child, but was like desperate to, it's yeah. all because of Nev Campbell. I <laughs> there are the gays who wanted to watch the movie because of Ryan Phillippe's abs, and I I was desperate for anything Nev Campbell. Imagine that me, an American preteen, allowed to watch the Scream <laughs> movies where people not are 54. gutted, disemboweled, yeah. and brutalized. But I can't watch, you know, some people do some coke and kiss each other in 54. Well, that's why what I thought was so, so interesting about the casting of 54 is that it couldn't be, you would never have gotten this cast at any point except for this exact pinpoint Mm -hmm. moment in time. Because it's the star of the Scream franchise, which at this point there had been two of them in 96 and 97. The star of... I know what you did last summer, or one of the stars of I know what you did last summer. The star of, or sorry, one of the stars of Clueless, Breckenmeyer, and then Salma Hayek, who had just made her uh, breakthrough a couple years before. I can't remember when Desperado was, but like Dusk Desperado Till Dawn. Desperado from Dusk Till Dawn. And like, so it was like 96, essentially, when like Salma Hayek made her breakthrough. And then she was in the faculty. In, I want to say, this same year, right? 98? God, I love the faculty. So, like, the era of teen horror, which is very uh, dear to me, uh, and I remember very vividly, was well represented. And, like, between teen horror and the WB, which sort of, like, uh, that's a, you know, double helix that, that winds upon itself, both of those things essentially created an entire generation of movie stars that all got their chance to headline something or other at some point. No, it's a specific, you're talking about a specific era, but like, I'm also like on the path of like, it's the only time you could ever have the breakout star of scream, a breakout star of, I know what you did last summer and the star of Austin powers. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But that, but that was also his moment because, like, Austin Powers was the year before this, and Austin Powers was a real slow burn. Where it yeah, didn't Austin really... Powers like was I f- forget if it was like the top selling or the top rented VHS of that year, but I, like that... it was a bomb in theaters. But then home viewing, yep, is what huge. made Austin Powers huge, huge. Also, as I'm looking at this cast, we want to shout out. Skip Sidhuth in this movie, who plays Ryan Phillippe's dad, who doesn't approve of the 54 lifestyle because, you know, disapproving dads have to exist in these movies. Um, 
also played the cop in Flawless. So it's uh, he's really like running a streak with us of these uh, New York City queer uh, queer adjacent roles in uh, in these movies that we're talking about. Gay disapprovers. Gay dis- well, he was. He ended up being. Uh, he came around in Flawless, right? He, that was the whole gag with him, right? Where yeah, but we he's expected still, him like to- saying like homophobic. Epithets. Well, sure, but like, but the whole that, but the whole gag of that character is that he, like he's very what are you queer? Yeah, yes, but then he ends up being sort of part of that weird little, uh, you know, hodgepodge family by sure. the end. Sure, anyway, sure, sure, sure. It's a real interesting cast. I'll say that. It- it is very true, though, that, like, this movie, like, the the prestige around it felt uh, very close to also, like, teen culture and, like, pop culture obsessive, like, it wasn't yeah. trashy at the time, though. It sound like, I'm, I'm struggling to find a way to make it sound not trashy, but, like, 54 nostalgia came through in a huge way and i think it's largely thanks to vh1 and like yes e true hollywood stories where like those were having a moment where it's like yeah so all of a sudden people would go all of a sudden this year studio 54 was like at the forefront of conversation again and it was and like yes like this was back when uh decade nostalgia seem to have its own distinct era like i think Mm -hmm. nowadays we're in a very sort of instant nostalgia period and like there is no one trend towards nostalgia that is anything as broad as back when like 70s nostalgia happened in the 90s or 80s nostalgia happened in the early aughts like that kind of thing and but like this moment of 70s nostalgia was so incredibly uh apparent and I mean, like, even, like, the aforementioned teen horror craze was, like, mm-hmm. a revival of that kind of 70s Halloween, uh, you know, babysitter in peril kind of Jamie Lee Curtis era, right? So, like, it was... While also being incredibly referential to it, like, yes. Scream is, like, what it is because it, it, like, references those movies so explicitly. Right. And, like, it marinates in its own nostalgia. Right. So 1998, 54 is in production. Whit Stillman's uh, The Last Days of Disco gets, like, rushed to theaters to beat Studio 54 to market, which to me is crazy in in only that it's crazy that there was a studio that had enough faith in a Whit Stillman movie to make money theatrically enough to rush it into theaters to beat a Miramax movie. Like, it's <laughs> because, like, it's like Last Days of Disco is by far the perfect movie, the most. Uh, mainstream attention that a Whit Stillman movie ever got. That's I know it got that he got the Oscar nomination for Metropolitan for writing it, and I know that like, but like there were niche, there were sort of like niches where Love and Friendship and even um, Damsels in Distress got attention. But like Last Days of Disco is the only time I ever saw a Whit Stillman movie with a commercial, like a TV commercial advertising for it. Right, mm-hmm. like so, it's a fantastic movie. It's a a plus movie i love it so much i watch it all the time i honestly wonder if there was some type of licensing battle between the two movies because i will say i was sitting through most of 54 and i was like okay when are we gonna get a fucking donna summer song when are we gonna get Mm. like 
There, there. I mean, it has a couple of the banger disco songs, but I was like, the music in '54 kind of is lacking to me. Well, I started to sort of make note of because I was like, oh, I'm gonna like start making a list of all the different RuPaul's Drag Race lip sync for your life songs that we hear in this because <laughs> it was just like because we got like sort of right on the back of each other. Uh, you make me feel mighty real, which was the iconic. Bob the Drag Queen beating Derek Barry lip sync, which but it's is, in the background for like two seconds. You it is, but it's like like people doing cocaine to you make right. you feel righty, mighty real. And then we get a snippet of Diana Ross's "The Boss," which was, of course, uh, All Stars three. BB Zahara Benet beat Trixie Mattel to that one. Um, but where was I going with this? Sorry, back up, back up. Oh, after that, I never like wrote down anything else because I never noticed too much other stuff like it for for a movie that and there's like a big scene with like knock on wood where um who's the original knock on wood performer is it not anita ward is it i think it no i don't know anyway it's somebody else like performing knock on wood and do we get an i will survive scene in it or am i conflating that I with the think so. with the behind the music i don't think we do like it's you would you would expect so much more music forwardness. You would expect like the 54 soundtrack to be like an essential like disco overview, right? And it's just it falls short. Mm-hmm. And it's it's telling that the most prominent soundtrack cut from 54 is the uh if you could read my mind remake with stars on 54, which is so like uh <laughs> like this made for the movie uh, creation that is just like you have an entire era of disco songs like you do not need to like gin up this gordon lightfoot cover or whatever mm-hmm. to it's it's just weird well, it's a weird choice i equated this movie so like distinctly with don't leave me this way because it was in like all of the advertising for the movie and mm. it like opens the movie at least in the theatrical cut, but it's still only like 20 seconds of the song. It's like yeah. used as a hype song for the movie. I don't know. I think it, it well, Last Days of Disco does disco better. Yeah, it does. And, and, and Last Days of Disco's uh, sort of uh, song selection is quirkier, but in a way, what's the song that they do at the end when they're on? It's Love Train, right? Love when Train, they're on the oh subway. my God, perfect What a great scene. Ending. Perfect yeah. ending. But yeah, I think it's I think the the disappointment in the song choices in 54 is leads into just this idea that like you don't ever feel like you're experiencing what this phenomenon was. You never feel like you're quite like in it. Yeah. In a way that you I feel sh- like you should the closest be. thing you get to it is the disco's dotty stuff, which is truly an yes. an- a club kid analog to Disco Sally who yep. was a septuagenarian who like was at 54 every day. Did not die on the dance floor though, so that's no. that was that was just for the movie. Although there was an anecdote again, this is coming from the behind the music on Studio Fifty Four, one of the best behind the music's there was, that somebody had tried to sneak into the club by crawling through the air ducts and got stuck and died. And whether that's one of those apocryphal stories that uh, you know builds up as the legend of Studio Fifty Four builds up or not, like it's a wild story indeed. That would be crazy. Yeah. So, it yeah, truly so, was the greatest behind the music of all time. Yeah, so 98, it's Last Days of Disco. 
it's uh, then stu- then 54 the movie comes out but that same year is the heyday of VH1's behind the music this was still in like I want to say I think it premiered in 1997 right behind the music I don't think it premiered much earlier before that because one of the very first ones was the Fleetwood Mac behind the music and that coincided with the dance and I yeah. know the dance was 1997 so well, the Fleetwood Mac one and the Studio 54 one are both like three hours long or like three episodes long <laughs> Right? Am I am I remembering that incorrectly? I think you might be remembering it correctly. The Studio Fifty Four one is just one episode, but I think it's a two hour episode. It's okay. definitely like it was definitely the, it, it was like the mega episodes. Yes, um, it's such. I've watched it so many times, and it's got some good, uh, you know, talking heads to it. Grace Jones is there. Um, they get a bunch of like the, you know, the people who were there, the the busboys and and doormen and bartenders and people who worked there. They get Ian Schrager to to talk. They get <laughs> they get the the federal prosecutor who prosecuted them, and in the most ingenious like chef's kiss decision possible they get three guys who had been rejected at the door at some point um to get in and they put them like three of them sitting together and they're just captioned as three guys who didn't get in and they're behind a velvet rope like it's so funny it's just really really uh that was that, that person, show uh, that show was on on point episode yeah uh, but like Grace Jones gets a talking heads. I think I, I said that, but um, there was this one uh, Mark Mothersbaugh anecdote where he talks about uh, smoking what he thought was a joint and then started seeing like the, the beams uh, fall down and cutting into people and there's blood and carnage. And it turned out he had taken a hit off of something laced with PCP and he was just fully hallucinating. And there's some like really good anecdotes, but also that was they also showed this footage of uh after their liquor license had gotten pulled and they pulled out their lawyer to combat the city and it was the infamous Roy Cohn was uh the lawyer for Steve Rubell and Roy Cohn went to Studio 54 <laughs> oh yeah like that's that line in uh in Angels in America the most notorious whatever whatever it ever snort coke at Studio 54 often has the latex sheath cock I put in my mouth been previously in the mouth of the most evil, twisted, vicious bastard ever to snort coke at Studio 54. But there's like footage of like Roy Cohn talking to the press on behalf of uh, Steve and Ian and, and defending them. And apparently he was just like an absolute uh, shark about this. And they ended up when they ended up getting raided by the IRS that one of the things they offered up to mitigate their charges was they offered up proof that at the time White House Chief of Staff for President Carter, um, Hamilton Jordan, was at Studio 54 and was doing coke at Studio 54. And because Roy Cohn was so embedded with the Reagan people, he told them that that this is the guy to give up because he wanted it to be a scandal for the Carter administration. And it fully backfired and blew up in Stephen Ian's face. And like, they ended up getting like no leniency for that and ended up getting like a, for the time, really, long prison sentence for tax evasion. They ended up going to prison. They get sentenced for like two years in prison. Mm-hmm. 
It's a See, great. I remember music. some of those type of details, and maybe this is also where I'm remembering like three full hours or three full episodes of it. I remember those details from the E True Hollywood story of F- Studio Fifty Four, which came after the behind the music after but not too far after definitely followed steve rubel and like his sentencing and like trying to revive studio 54 followed it a lot more than the behind the music did yes yes i think that's right um because i also watched part of that too uh this morning also in 98 though studio 54 reopened as a theater space when the cabaret revival moved which was after this movie came out but that was in 98 right which Which i ended up seeing when they brought that same cabaret revival like they didn't i don't know i don't the rules of this are weird i i would just (laughs) call it a revival too because it was like yeah, decade or more since it revival. happened but it but because nothing about the show changed it was still the same show anyway mm-hmm. i saw it with michelle but williams brought back to bring some money right michelle williams is sally bowles and i didn't get to see alan coming which is so disappointing he was out with the flu that week but uh uh it was good but like that specific production, which was like known as being the seedier cabaret, that like kind of felt more authentic yes. to what that bar would have been in that era of Germany. But like it had this added veneer of like, oh, you're seeing it in a space where people used to fuck, <laughs> like the chairs yes. that sitting in. Perhaps somebody had sex in this chair well, or did some cocaine or That's what I was thinking of watching the behind the music because they were talking about how infamous the basement of Studio 54 was for like sex and drugs and celebrity and whatever. And I'm just like, and now that's essentially 54 Below, which is a cabaret space uh, <laughs> in that same spot. And I'm just like, that's now we're just like, like, theater homos go to watch jeremy jordan sing it's all coming back to me now like that's just <laughs> and i've been there like plenty of times i saw like um a, a anniversary screening of uh camp the anna kendrick movie camp there that's where i saw the hit list musical uh, uh live uh, live performance after smash and all that stuff i was just like it's so it's such a different universe now that like occupies that space than than occupied it back in those days but it's funny to me we should talk more about the actual movie though i feel like we've we sort of uh, ricocheted off of the plot a little bit but uh, but the movie kind of ricochets off of the movie like the movie needs like a level of understanding of like why studios 54 was so significant before you even watch it like i'm sure if the children watched it today they wouldn't see what a big deal this club was like it the movie like needs you to kind of enter into it already having that level of of obsession because like it doesn't establish it on its own um i mean we could talk about the like thruppleness of the movie which like in the theatrical cut it doesn't make that much sense because it's just like Ryan Phillippe and Salma Hayek kind of getting together and dancing around it. Right. But like You I don't have imagine... the scene where they start to, to have sex in the bathroom stall and Steve is like looking in on them, right? Uh, no, you do. You oh, do, you do? It's pretty okay. late in the movie. It um, is very late in the movie, yeah. But like that whole dynamic and the relationship would make so much 
more sense if there is also the sexual relationship with Breck and Meyer's character. Right. What does definitely get cut out is there's a scene where they kiss, the where uh, Shane and Greg kiss. And it's very sort mm-hmm. of like awkward and fraught, but like then at least it at least pays off that tension. And that comes after the couple scenes where uh, Shane becomes like sort of like goes off with this guy, this friend of Celia Ward's who she's <laughs> the Celia Ward character in this movie is amazing. Cause like all she, all she does in this movie is she has sex with Ryan Phillippe's character and she like paws at him constantly. And then she just tells all of her friends how great he is in bed. Like that's essentially her role in this movie is to like spread the, the legend of uh, chain 54, the, the bar- absolutely the cut Kylie Jenner out of the WAP video and put CeeLo Ward from this movie <laughs> in there. Is Lauren Hutton in the cut that you saw? Yes. Okay. Yes. That Where she takes scene. her to Lauren Hutton's house and all that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And, and the guy calls him a troglodyte and he doesn't know what a troglodyte means. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, I think you're right. I think without that, uh, especially that one scene of uh, Shane and Greg kissing, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that there is this sort of three-way sexual tension between them. And then, of course, then that scene of them in uh, in Ramona's fur at the end doesn't have the same kind of impact. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty. It's a pretty thin impact as it is, and like if it's like robbed of that, even more. You also said that he has like a male seal award in the director's cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's what I was sort of that was I was getting to too. Is yeah, he goes home with this other guy, and you see there's that montage that ends with the butt shot. Um, there's the montage of him sort of like waking up in bed with a bunch of different women, and in that mm-hmm. one, there's that's a couple theatrical. of theatrical. Right, there's a couple of shots of him waking in waking up in bed with men, sort of interspersed in that. And there's also the scene in the theatrical where he's in the hot tub and that sort of like vacation locale next to the woman. And in the director's cut, he starts out in the hot tub next to this guy, this guy who he had been sort of boy toy for. And so he's like sort of like canoodling with that guy. And then the woman moves from the other end of the hot tub and sort of like sits in between them. And so, but they cut out the whole, like the part of that scene that alludes to this relationship that he's having with Mm. this guy as well. So, yeah. That's interesting. And it's not Michael York because when Michael York showed up, I really thought that like, Okay, Ryan Phillippe's gonna fight Michael York, right? And also, and cabaret vibes and all that kind of stuff too, right? right We're like, right. Uh, yes, no, it was not Michael York. It was, um, it was the guy with the scarf who I thought was supposed to be a Halston analog, but uh, maybe not. So I mm. don't know. But there's definitely just like there's just a lot of smaller stuff where there's just like plausible queerness, where which like made makes so much more sense. Because this whole idea of just like, there are no lines, there's no boundaries, everything like that. And the test screening that this had, of course, on Long Island, um, that essentially doomed the original Mark Christopher cut of this movie, was audiences didn't like the main characters, which honestly, fair, because like they're not great characters, but they particularly didn't like the fact that they did all this quote-unquote bad behavior and that the story didn't punish them for it. Mm -hmm. And so they had to take... First of all, they took out all the queer shit. And then second of all, they added in this sort of like false little 
happy ending where all of a, the the ending of the movie is no longer that they're just sort of these three kind of like refugees wandering the street together, you know, thruple mm-hmm. illusion, whatever. And but it instead, a, they've, like, they've reformed themselves and they've all sort of like gone straight and narrow and, and all this kind of stuff. And they show up at the Revive Studio 54 and shoot each other pleasant nods across the room and it's such a wasn't bad it scene. a moment? Wasn't it a moment in time? And it's like after the movie I just watched, was it a moment in time? I right. don't know. Well, and after reading all the stuff about what was cut out and why, I started to think about movies like uh Bohemian Rhapsody, right? Which like mm-hmm. caught this like tidal wave of criticism for doing what uh, a ton of biopics, including, I will say, the better-received Rocket Man that didn't get any of this criticism, which I did think it actually did also deserve, was this idea of this moralistic view of these uh, rock star, primarily, biopics where they indulge in drugs and sex and queerness and whatever, and that's like the low point of the kind of uh, parabola uh, arc of the mm-hmm. movie. And... They all then then the people who do this must be punished for it in some way. And in Bohemian Rhapsody, it was particularly egregious because the punishment for that in that case is that Freddie Mercury ended up dying of AIDS. And but like it exists. Meanwhile, in, all of his other bandmates are presented as like holding hands with their wives and not doing right. any drugs and not drinking and not doing any of this, which is of course absurd. Right. But it made me think of like all this stuff that I find so objectionable in that genre of this, you know, misbehavior and punishment and redemption for it and all this sort of stuff. Um, stems from like it comes from somewhere. And we all tend to rightly, I think, put it on Hollywood studios in this sort of like accepted dogma of how these stories must go and then these all the way back to the Hayes code right and these scripts don't deviate from that and whatever but then you see this like something like 54 which did attempt to deviate from that at least a little bit mm-hmm. and it wasn't just Miramax and Harvey Weinstein that like dictated the change it was these audiences who wouldn't accept it and the fact that like so it's like what's the chicken or the egg have audiences been brainwashed by movies to only accept this particular narrative arc and when they don't see it they revolt against it yeah they or, don't understand what they're watching or are, are like are movies responding to the way that like people react to it or are people responding to the way movies have made them react to it and it's in any way it's just infuriating I mean, at some point, you're maybe talking about audiences from 25 years ago, but also maybe, like, uh, uh, no diss to Long Island, but maybe if you're going to test screen this movie, Long Island is not your audience to test screen it for. But it's a weird uh, bit of cowardice for Miramax to obviously greenlight this movie and shoot the movie as scripted as what it sounds like the director's cut is and the way that it ends, that it's like basically like supporting a thruple or you know some type of uh, and, and, and like, like that and not explicitly and, but like it it you know there's there's allusions to stuff and like let sure, that stay sure well yeah. i mean as even if nev campbell's character like is showing up at the same time it's like you can go to this one straight woman who you've idolized right. who has been like this 
pinnacle of whatever for you. Or you can go to your, um, you know, unconventional family unit that you've made. Yeah. Um, and that is like, that's a clear choice and you're approving that choice and then you back out of it. It's a yes. weird bit of cowardice to me. It is. It absolutely is. Um, the other thing I thought of though, you might, the, speaking of the Long Islandness of it is this movie does belong to that canon of movies about people from New Jersey or people from sort of Long Island, like <laughs> venturing into the city. I thought immediately of Coyote Ugly when I started watching this of the, you know, I'm going to, I'm, you know, I've lived in the, in the shadow of those skyscrapers all my life. And now I'm going to make the big move into the city. And, uh, and like, obviously like Saturday night fever is such a, an analog for a movie like this. But, uh, I only tend to think of the trash ones because I thought of coyote ugly and I thought of 200 cigarettes where the, uh, Gabby Hoffman and Christina Ricci characters, uh, Take the Your cousin probably train isn't in. even having a party. She is having a party. I just need the address. The and they're both from it, like Ronkonkoma or whatever. Yeah. And it's the voice uh, is the choice. <laughs> the voice is the choice indeed. Um yeah, what if Natalie Portman had been their third friend in that film? How much better would that have been? Natalie Portman should by right be in two hundred cigarettes. She should. She absolutely should. You know who's great in two hundred cigarettes? Courtney Kate Love. Hudson. Oh, she is. That's the first thing I ever saw Kate Hudson in. Me too. And I remember having, I because she's stuck in, I think we've talked about this, how she's stuck in those scenes with Jay Moore, and I can't stand yeah. Jay Moore. And um, although she ends up with somebody else later. Is it Paul Rudd? Who is? No, because Paul Rudd and Courtney Love end up together. She ends up sort can't. of like uh, at the is end of the, the movie. Is she the one that fucks Elvis Costello? No, Janine Garofalo fucks Elvis Costello. That's a wild movie. I should see it again. Anyway, yeah, I remember thinking like, oh, this like this girl's got a little bit of light on her, and I had no idea that it was Goldie Hawn's daughter at the time, and it was great. Yeah. Okay. Um, we should talk about. We should move on to the Oscar conversation with Mike yes. Myers. Yes. Because let's. like, it, it, it's always been true that like comedic actors doing dramatic work gets its own kind of buzz, and like it's a like it's its own type of Ouroboros tasting its own tail where it's like that is considered more serious than whatever. But like, this is kind of a weird um, time in that, like this was a huge conversation partly because of Jim Carrey doing it um, with the Truman show. And it feels like in a certain way, Mike Myers was just like piggybacking on top of that. You know, I th- I do crazy think here. No, I don't think you're crazy because that was definitely a thing. Although the Jim Carrey stuff was kind of definitional to the limitations of that in that like ultimately mm-hmm. the Oscars never let him into their club. And whenever I see a comedic actor sort of like making this play for a dramatic role seemingly to you know, get Oscar attention to for rewards attention. It always, I always think of Robin Williams first because Robin Williams is the mm-hmm. big success story there where especially, I mean, Jim Carrey falls in this with this too, where it's just like this very singular comedic persona. And by this point, Mike Myers had done Wayne's world. He had done Austin powers. He had, you know, was past Saturday night live by this point, but um, he was not only like a comedic actor, but he was, comedic creator of his own sort of 
uh, atmosphere, uh, universe, this kind of thing. And Robin Williams and not was the type of comedic performer. Like maybe the analog here is more Adam Sandler because he's not the type of comedic performer that gets like you know, uh, uh, high-minded consideration. Like he he was doing g- goofy comedies. It's not like you know, right, right, prestige comedies or. And Robin Williams had been able to so successfully make that transition where it's like, I believe his first nomination is for Good Morning Vietnam in 87 or 88. and Which is like one foot in each puddle, yes. basically. It's, it's definitely, he still is, like, he's doing the Robin Williams thing in the same way that, like, he didn't, like, Mrs. Doubtfire, he's doing the Robin Williams thing. But because it is set in this Vietnam setting that had been such a reliable Oscar sort of uh, environment for a while. Like Platoon had just won Best Picture and this whole kind of thing. So that was kind of the gateway. But then he's like fully serious roles in, um, well, he doesn't get, does he get nominated for Awakenings or is that De Niro? I think it's De Niro, but like Mm -hmm. he gets nominated for The Fisher King, which is again, sort of like Robin Williams, sort of like, allowed to do his thing within the confines of a very different kind of role. Um, and then Goodwill Hunting happens, and that is fully um, Robin Williams taking it seriously. You know, there's mm-hmm. like, there's some humor to those scenes with him and Matt Damon. He tells the story of his, uh, his wife farting and whatnot, and it's very comedic. But um, But it's mostly, it's just like Robin Williams is downshifting into kindly you know judd hirsch and ordinary people kind of stuff and it works he wins the oscar for it in 1997 Mm -hmm. and i think especially harvey weinstein being the sort of oscars obsessed person that he is you could easily see well and harvey weinstein uh, goodwill hunting was a miramax movie so like are they going this was could have been seen as like they're following the same mold that they yep. just had success with. And part of my thinking of why they would tack on that ending is the director's cut ends without a real resolution to the Steve Rubell character. He's very, mm-hmm. very much by the end of that movie, you get the sense of just like, he's not the important character here. It's the other ones. And that tacked on final scene while bad at the very Which least, is like very is, sentimental high school graduation. But it's type of it's monologue. attempting to give you a sentimental, warm feeling about Mike Myers's character specifically, and I think that was probably with an eye towards we're going to try and make a awards campaign happen for him. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of chatter about it. I remember there being a lot of like talk in media about is this a possibility. And I think Robin yeah, Williams because was like we're already having that conversation about Jim Carrey for the Truman Show, and like it had just happened for Robin Williams, right? And it just never materialized. You know, like he didn't even get a satellite nomination. Like he did, you know, there was yeah. just which probably has to do with the movie bombing and yeah. giving bad reviews. Yes, I think so too. Which again, we talked about. I don't think he's giving a bad performance in this. It's an interesting. No, I think he's good, and that's why the rewrite like finale moment is so strange to me because like giving him this sentimental monologue is like to have some type of like emotional connection to this character is not why the performance is good. Like the performance is good because like a, like it's, it's semi stunt 
casting because Mike Myers looks remarkably like Steve Rubell anyway. Um, but like, he's a creep. He's like a dirty businessman who's also on like drugs all of the time. All the time. Yeah. And Which again what Mike is Myers based is in reality, at. but yeah. Yeah. And he has like this like really complicated presence on screen in this movie that I at least found interesting and then when that monologue happened it's like wait that's not at all yeah why this character has been compelling throughout the movie so it's and again self-defeating yeah and again you you watch the behind the music and you're just like oh there are so many other facets to rubel's character that i think myers would have done a really interesting job with about how Mm -hmm. sort of his this kind of you know his overall dream of what he wanted his particular corner of New York City nightlife to be and, you know, this melting pot of all these different types of people, the way he essentially cast the club by the people he let in and the people he didn't. You see a little bit of him at the door, uh-huh. which I always think is like all his scenes at the door are really good. And he's talking about, you know, you know, I'm not going to let you in. You're wearing, you know, you got that hat. You look like a waiter. You look like James Bond. What's going on? And it's like all that stuff's really good. All that stuff's really funny. And um, I think if the movie allows him to be a little funnier, it's also probably good. Although I wonder if Mike Myers as Rubel trying to be funny is too much Mike Myers, if that makes sense. Maybe. Like you would pull you out, pull you it may, like it might pull you out of the character. See, I thought the scenes that were Mike Myers as Mark Rubel trying to be funny were even like Mark Rubel's version Steve of being Rubel. funny was like intimidation. Uh, creepiness uh sexual predation yeah well certainly you get those scenes too absolutely but like again like a more complicated you know many sides kind of a version of that character i think would be yeah. really interesting it's just it i mean i guess you could in some way say he's the villain of the movie but there's nothing yeah. like mustache twirly about it it's, it's well ultimately just really he's complicated... just complicated yeah ultimately his attempts at sort of lecherous villainy come to naught because he's so he's like he's so zonked out on quaaludes that he can't do anything about it you know what i mean where it's just Mm -hmm. sort of like he's never all that threatening because it's just like well just like you know push him down and he'll pass out like that kind of a thing and there's i don't know there's not a ton of threat to him which you know okay It's a very interesting supporting actor year at the Oscars, if you want to take a look at it, too. And I don't think there isn't room, there wouldn't have been room for maneuvering in here if the film had been better received and if, like, a lot of different things had gone a different way. This Mm -hmm. was the year that James Coburn, quite surprisingly, uh, won the award for his role in Affliction, which... Is some... I hadn't realized that win had had almost no precursor attention right. until I recently watched it, and I was kind of blown away by that. It's, I remember being surprised at the time, but I think I should have been more surprised. I feel he beats out uh, the critical champ that year. At least one of them was Billy Bob Thornton. This was the year that like all the critics' prizes were won by Billy Bob Thornton for A Simple Plan and Bill Murray for Rushmore, and then Murray doesn't get nominated uh, at all, 
So and Ed Harris wins the Globe. Am I right? Ed Harris won the Globe, and Ed Harris was the one most people thought was going to win the Oscar because he had the best narrative. Whereas, like Billy Bob had won for writing uh, two years before for Sling Blade, so it's like he did have an Oscar. And I mean, I guess like Ed Harris isn't really like a cuddly personality either. This was a really—it's an interesting lineup where it's like Billy Bob Thornton, Ed Harris. Robert Duvall, James Coburn, who are all some degree or another of ornery or like uh, <laughs> aloof or standoffish or whatever. And then Jeffrey Rush for Shakespeare in Love, who was the, like was never going to win, had just won Best Actor two years before, was absolutely a let's give Shakespeare in Love another nomination because we really enjoyed it kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but like he was never a threat to win. So. But um, so Billy Bob had the Oscar for writing from a couple years ago, but Ed Harris had the narrative of it's his what fourth nomination by this point. Maybe it's he had been what the I right stuff, Apollo 13. This is maybe his third nomination. Yeah, it's before Pollock. It's before Pollock. But I think after Apollo 13 and he doesn't win for that, I think there was a drumbeat of just like, oh, Ed Harris should win. Ed Harris should have an Oscar. He's so good. And it would have been the way for this for the Oscars to have awarded the Truman Show, which after the Jim Carrey snub, they still gave the Truman Show a Best Director nomination for Peter Weir. So like clearly the Oscar voters did enjoy that movie. But then on the day, it's James Coburn. And you're right, almost no precursor support to it whatsoever. He's also not playing a nice like he's not playing, you know, a character that the audience is supporting at all he's just like no, playing this he's old a bastard abusive father right alcoholic which i think i think it's two things i think it's one that was probably a very very close race between multiple people yes and two nick nolte actually had a lot of steam in a very yes, very competitive did. best actor lead race. actor race and i think james coburn probably benefited absolutely from how much attention nick nolte was getting absolutely to the i think point that he won i think that's a big part of it i think both of those things you said is true is that i bet you there was a big split between people voting for ed harris people voting for billy bob thornton and i think there was probably a lot of support for robert duvall in a civil action for getting that like old timer still got it you know he's a previous winner but it was a bajillion years ago and um I'm sure he got a bunch of support too. So I think you're right. I think the vote totals were pretty split and Nolte and Ian McKellen for gods and monsters were the two favorites at the beginning of that Oscar season. We've talked about this before about how Mm -hmm. like Roberto Benigni sort of barnstormed through gets that Oscar. And then immediately they were like, what did we do? What happened? The point I will make is uh, when you're least like curmudgeonly, elder statesman nominee in a category is jeffrey rush yes yes i do kind of he was still the wonder choice. if mike myers and 54 itself had been better received if, maybe like they would have made room for that i mean they didn't make room for bill murray in rushmore who was also a curmudgeonly character as well like that was just like right. those were your options that year in 1998 truly and it, also uh, a comedic actor who has yes several attempts at like dramatic absolutely uh, movies all the way back to the razor's edge in the 80s and all the way up till 2020 now he's going to be i don't think he's going to end up getting a nomination for uh for on the rocks no it's it's comedic but it's still it's bill murray comedic in that it's like modern day bill murray comedic right where it's uh 
it, they're sad. He's you know he's funny, but there's a lot it's of sad. But I think it, I think it's the most like leaning into his the comedy side versus the drama that he's. We're talking about his way. role, of course, in On the Rocks, the Sofia Coppola movie On the Rocks, which I forget when it's coming to Apple TV Plus. It might be either this week or this coming week by the time this episode airs. Check it out; it's good. I loved it. I lo- I seem to like it a lot more than other people did. Yeah, I think you liked it better than me, but I do think it's good and, and worth watching. And Bill Murray's great in it. All right, we got to talk about Ellen Albertini Dow, or else I'm going to just fucking explode. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Also having a moment, because uh, a huge Wedding Singer moment. is 1998, right? Right. So Ellen Albertini Dow, if you don't know the name, and you probably wouldn't, uh, you definitely would know her on site, where if you see her... She is like consummate Hollywood old lady. She's playing Disco Dottie, who Chris mentioned, based on an actual person, Disco Sally. And she's, you know, she's the old lady at the club and she's boogieing down and she's doing drugs and she's flirting with, flirting with the bartenders. She is a total ray of sunshine in this movie. She's a total blast. I absolutely love her. She is, and I think the movie realizes it too, because she's the only person who they call upon to like ground this movie emotionally by the end where like, it's the only thing that could happen in the movie to elicit a like strong emotion from the audience is to have disco Dottie die uh, on the dance floor at the end of this movie. But uh, as Chris mentioned, 1998, she's also in the wedding singer playing the rap and granny who sings rapper's delight at the uh, climactic point of the movie. And it was, everywhere like it was in all the commercials it was in all this stuff for wedding singer it was a total sensation it was she was the moment like if wendy williams were on television at the time she would tell you that uh ellen albertini dow was the moment now come on now indeed and also singer, problematic fave i how how problematic why is it problematic I think it's transphobic. I don't think that movie oh, I uh, forgot particularly about likes women all that well. Okay, it's been like, a while since I saw The punchline of the movie is a little boy calling a woman a bitch. Like, yeah, you're remembering all the stuff that isn't Drew Barrymore in that movie. I mostly just remember Drew I know, Barrymore. Drew Barrymore's sensational in The Wedding Singer. Drew Barrymore's really good. But also, the other and thing like, that I... Julia Gulia is genuinely one of the Julia Gulia's a great like joke. Ever. Also... The John Lovitz cameo in that movie where he sings Ladies' Night uh, aggressively to to Drew Barrymore as he's auditioning for uh, their wedding singer position is so good. Drew um, Barrymore is way better in that movie than that movie deserves and like fully like pulls it up from its bowels into like just wonderfulness. You're reminding me of all the objectionable parts about it, but I still have warm feelings about that movie. Maybe I shouldn't ever watch it again, but I remember really enjoying it. Anyway, no, just keep your warm feelings about it. Just up- watch her doing the wedding monologue to the mirror of where she keeps saying "I'm Mrs. Julia Gulia" and sobbing. <laughs> She's so good. I love her so much. Also, She's the so concept great. of church tongue I remember also from that from that movie where they talk about how you have to how to uh, kiss at the end of a wedding and you know tongue but just a little bit of tongue that's good oh okay church tongue yes 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 um the other ellen albertini dow role that i remember vividly is she was on an episode of seinfeld in 1995 playing the mother of jay peterman 
And in this particular episode, as Seinfeld episodes do, plot lines kind of converge. And George was in trouble with his fiance because he wouldn't tell her what his ATM pin code was. And <laughs> she wanted him to share it with him so that they would have no secrets and whatever. And he wouldn't tell anybody. And Jerry's just like, just tell her. And he's like, no. And then he, uh, Peterman, uh, he ends up not being able to get out of these social obligations with Peterman, who's Elaine's boss. Like she doesn't like, he doesn't have anything, but he gets like dragged along by Peterman to his mom's house. Who is like sick and in bed and dying. And in a moment where it's just George and the mom, George is just like, I got to tell somebody it's been like, you know, bubbling up inside me. And he tells her that his pin code is Bosco, like the chocolate syrup Bosco. And she just goes, Bosco. Bosco. Bosco! Mama? Quiet, quiet, it's a secret. Bosco! Bosco! What are you trying to say? Bosco! Peterman runs in the room and she says, Bosco, one more time, and then she dies. And then so Peterman's like, I gotta find out what this Bosco is. And that's the whole, then the entanglement for the rest of the episode. But um, every time I see Albert, Ellen Albertini Dow, I either think of. Um, her singing Rapper's Delight or her saying Bosco. That's that's a legacy then right there. After uh Wedding Singer, she spent the next twenty years until her unfortunate passing, may she rest, um playing uh like horny old ladies. She was she was she was the rap and granny for the rest of her life, essentially. She was variations yeah. on that thing. She died in twenty fifteen at the age of a hundred and one. And she stayed booked and busy the entire time. God bless her. Like, just a legend, for sure. And also, she's great in 54. That's the other thing, is she got a Razzie nomination for that movie, and if fuck those people. If you need another people. reason to say fuck the Razzie. Fuck those people. Why are you picking on this lady? First of all, the scene in the drugstore where she runs, runs into Shane, and she's like her like non-54 persona, and she's there with her granddaughter, is a great scene. Yeah. Well... Okay, first of all, they probably, A, hated the movie because it's a bunch of straight homophobes right. and they, like, want to shit on disco. But they also probably wanted to shit on Rap and Granny without having the actual, like, stones to do it. I think that's probably very true. And look, you know, Rap and Granny is not a proud cultural moment in our history, but, like, it's it's harmless, I feel like we can say, with uh, with confidence, but... Yeah, like, shut up. Don't pick on this old lady. I'll fight you. I'll fight you, ra- uh, Razzie voters. Word thing that she has on her page, and it's it's cruel and stupid. I think we should uh, retroactively have that nomination removed. Oh, my God. Where's where's our change.org petition to have <laughs> Ellen Albertini <laughs> Dow's Razzie nomination stricken from Ellen the record? Ellen Albertini Dow's name. Yes. I can't talk today. I, it's It's fine. We're all going through it. Um, can we talk for a half a second about uh, Sherry Stringfield, who gets a individual credit uh, title card credit and Ellen, Ellen Ebertini Dow doesn't, which I think is interesting. What? Sherry Stringfield, who, if she wasn't still on ER by this point, she had just left. Like, she was... Uh, I, I wrote down in my notes, she is the Elizabeth Rome in American Hustle of this movie, where Elizabeth it was just Rome like... Elizabeth Rome is good in American Hustle. She is good in American Hustle. I like her a lot in American Hustle. Um, where it's like, it took me a long time. I was just like, who is... Why do I know her? And it's, it's Sherry Stringfield. Um, playing the, like, absolutely 
inexplicable role of like Steve's accountant or like whatever, like she's handling the money in the back room of this thing. And then he fires her for like specious reasons. And then at the very end, when Shane walks in and he sees the feds raiding the office, she's there. So we're given the, the um, we're supposed to think like, she's the one who ratted Steve out mm-hmm. to the feds. But like in that case, the person who rats you out doesn't like show up with the feds. Like, I guess maybe she had to let them in or something like that in the back door. But like, it was very strange that like, she's only there so that the audience can be like, Oh, her like that, which I thought was right. pretty stupid. I don't know. I'm glad I finally saw this movie. Yeah. I'd always Sh- wanted to as a child and was not allowed. Shout out but, to like, uh, all my children's Cameron Matheson as one of the shirtless ab forward bartenders. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who is because it was funny because the Nev Campbell's character is is uh, mentioned as she's on All My Children in the in the universe of the movie, and I thought that was funny that like Cameron Matheson at that moment was, was still on, on my All My Children. He was uh, he and Josh Dumel played romantic rivals who then I think uh, at some point ultimately became friends and then they killed off Josh Dumel. Alas, can I talk about one of my petty grievances with this movie? Of course. We love petty Okay, grievances. in a lot of the, like, I'm just going through my notes, a lot of the disco scenes, they're just, like, literally throwing glitter around to where it's, like, it's stuck in people's hair, it's stuck yes. on people's faces. But in the same shots, you will see bartenders carrying drinks around the dance floor, and I was so upset the whole time that there was, like, glitter, glitter. in people's drinks. Yes. Because, like, when I order a cocktail, I, I want my cocktail i don't want like it, it was very stressful to me as uh uh i guess maybe someone with a uh, low grade ocd no i i get it uh, i understand it 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 just it was gross to me it was gross it was gross <laughs> it was cape Blanchett. i don't want gross. little bits of plastic floating in my champagne no who does yeah i'm going through my notes too i mentioned um ryan Phillippe's robert plant wig at the very beginning of the movie before he gets his uh signature perm curls i i wrote it down as peter frampton uh it's also yes it's the same that wig is cut from the same cloth for sure it is justin timberlake on snl as uh brian gibb (laughs) yes absolutely um the one point shane the shane character says to i think it's his sisters when he comes back after the first time he says the thing about stars is they're short no truer statement has ever been said like that. It's absolutely Correct. true. The thing about stars is that they're short. Um, the dialogue in this movie is often really bad. Um, there's the, the moment where uh, back at Greg and Anita's apartment with Shane, Greg tells Shane that like the three food groups in this movie uh, are in this, in this apartment are uh, like solid liquid and hot smoke. And I'm just like, shut up. That's so dumb. <laughs> and then at some point, Celia Ward's character says this doobie is ton excellent. And I was just like, this is egregious. I don't know. I can't deal. What oh, else? Uh, Salma Hayek's iconic pose on the poster. Like it is, it's the true. Uh, I don't know. Like you can just imagine her saying, "Like yeah, girl," or something like that. Like it, it could easily, you could lift it, uh, color correct it so that it's not like hot orange. Yeah, and uh, it could be uh, an Activia ad. This was also the I'm pretty sure the first movie after Welcome to the Dollhouse that I saw Heather Matarazzo in, and I remember being so happy. Her. 
that like she was getting other work because like she's so singular in Welcome to the Dollhouse and you know wonderful. All right, should we move on to the IMDb game? Yeah, let's do it. All right, explain to our listeners, new and old, uh, what the IMDb game is. Sure. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they're most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. That's the IMDb game. Sure How is. are we doing this today? Uh, why don't you give me first? Okay, cool. So uh, I actually went down the Nev Campbell route into the Scream universe, the be- my beloved Scream universe, like the only good spooky season watching that I've had this year. I'm, I'm striking out for the most part. But uh, of her co-stars of the Scream franchise, I have for you uh, one Mr. David Arquette. Oh, I thought you were going to give me famous IRA uh, almost was Rose McGowan. Okay. No, I, I did not. I did not. Rose McGowan, I feel like, would be easy because it would probably be Scream, Charmed. Jawbreaker, yeah. Charmed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we'll maybe do her another time. All right. David Arquette. Scream. No. Fuck off. <laughs> what? That's insane. Scream 2? Yes. Okay. That's even more <laughs> insane. Like, that's so stupid. Oh my god. Well, now I've got to decide whether Scream 3 or Scream 4. All right, we'll put the pin in those for a second. I'm not ruling out that it's Scream 2, 3, and 4, and then something stupid. Um, And it's all film, right? Yes, no TV. I'm trying to think of like that era where they would have allowed him to be the lead in things. Is one of them ready to rumble? It was a time. No, not ready to rumble. Sorry, that's your two guesses. Uh, you know who isn't ready to rumble? Scott Ellen Albertini Dow. Oh, is she really? That's it's of course she is. That is a perfect choice for her for Ellen Albertini Dow. Do you know? You may not because you are not like me. Uh, we're not into wrestling during that era. That like because uh, Ready to Rumble is uh, David Arquette and Scott Con get into wrestling, and Oliver Platt is like the whatever wrestling champion. Um. That off of that movie, David Arquette started competing in, like, wrestling matches for WCW and became World Championship Wrestling Champion. Yes. Yes. At he that has time. A, a movie called, like, You Can't Kill David Arquette, and I think it is about his wrestling. And it was so poorly received by wrestling fans that a lot of them chalk that up to like one of the things that ended up killing that company was uh, David Ar- letting David Arquette become champion. It was truly a time. Anyway. I got it, your years for yeah. you. Your years are 1999, 2000, and 2002. Okay. 2000 is Scream 3. It is indeed Scream 3. Okay. I picked David Arquette because Scream 2 and 3 are on as known for, but not the first Scream. That is It has to be. I'm pretty sure bizarre. he's lower build in the original Scream. Probably, because Drew Barrymore is certainly build above him. Yeah, I, I think by- Drew Barrymore got an and credit for it. Oh, maybe. Doing the full uh, Janet Lee, But, like, Skeet Ulrich would be built above him in that. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By, yeah, by, by two and certainly by three, 
the the central trio of that movie uh certainly he was, was also coalesced. like among that cast he wasn't famous like right. skeet ulrich had already had like the craft right no you're totally right you're absolutely right anyway 99 2002 see in like 99 i'm pretty sure was ready to rumble or maybe that was 98 anyway 99 is definitely a movie that, like, people still love and talk about, and he is second build for, but, like, nobody ever mentions that he is so prominent in this movie. Oh, is it uh, Never Been Kissed? It is indeed Never Been Kissed. He's the brother, the creepy brother who was, like, absolutely dating a high school girl and uh, Never Been Kissed, I'm pretty sure. Um, 2002? 2002 uh you could maybe uh justify this as a spooky season movie but like it's more of a dumb comedy you probably forgot that this is a summer movie pretty sure it bombed i wonder what it opened against so like less less obviously spooky than something like idle hands or eight-legged freaks right yeah uh is it eight-legged freaks it's eight-legged freaks oh my god I definitely don't remember Bug that as a summer movie. Comedy. Yeah. All right. I'm surprised that I got that as easily as I did. Okay. <laughs> a seminal Scarlett Johansson film, Eight-Legged Freaks. Oh, boy. Right? She's in that, I'm pretty sure. Yes, she is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Stupid. Stupid stuff. Do you remember, because it was in 2002, so of course that was the summer of Spider-Man, that the tr- the TV commercials for Eight-Legged Freaks had one of the dumb characters somebody was just like what was that and the guy's like it's a spider man and like that was in all of their ads to try and draft off of spider-man's success i am looking at a red carpet premiere photo of eight-legged freaks with scarlett johansson in plastic hoop earrings from claire's (laughs) auburn hair and a nose ring wow a moment in time for sure so that was what O two. So she had already, she wasn't Ghost quite. Ghost world had happened, right? But Lost in Translation hadn't. Okay, interesting. All right, ready for yours? Who's do you have for me? All right. So I went the not only the Mike Myers route, but the fifty four is a stealth Austin Powers reunion route, where it was also, uh, Mike Myers and Michael York reunited yes. together again uh, one year after Austin Powers International Man of Mystery the other star of that film was the great Elizabeth Hurley so uh-huh. give me Elizabeth Hurley <clears throat> okay well Elizabeth Hurley Austin Powers has got to be on there yes Austin Powers is on there okay um bedazzled yes in her Where role she plays as a devil the devil opposite brendan fraser in bedazzled from 2000 okay um who did bedazzled was that anybody of a note she shot i mean harold ramus harold ramus directed bedazzled oh no yes he did um okay uh what the hell else was she in um she had a real moment in time there she really did was it her with hugh grant right that was the couple dated yes and then he she was the one he was dating when he got caught with the hooker right yes she did okay what's the movie she did with matthew perry that bombed 
It's the two of them on the poster. Pretty sure she's in some type of cowboy hat. I just can't remember the movie. But I I distinctly remember this poster and this existing. Ugh. All right, I will tell you. You know I know the movie, but I don't know the title. Right. It's is not it, it it's not, not it, so I'll I'll let you move on from that. It was serving Damn. Sarah. She absolutely is on the poster in a uh hot pink bedazzled uh cowboy hat. And early through ta- early 2000s, man. Hot pink plaid mini skirt with just like money floating around and Matthew Perry's in a leather jacket. Jesus Christ. Yikes. The one thing that could bring them together is revenge. Is the is the tagline for serving Sarah? Ooh, yeah. Uh, I am not going to be able to get this. I don't think it. I don't think she shows up in the other Austin Powers movies. If I remember correctly, is she in like the second Austin Powers? It's the second Austin Powers. She's briefly in the second sure. Austin Powers one. Because you find out at the very beginning of The Spy Who Shagged Me that she's a fembot, that she was a fembot all along. That makes absolute sense, though I do not remember that. Because she um, has the the um, the the guns come out of her, her boobies, and he was like, machine gun jubblies, how did I not notice those before? And then she, as the robot, just goes, try foreplay, and then tries to kill him. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh God, I I'm gonna have to maybe throw out something that she could just conceivably be in. Um, like, is she in like Drowning Mona? Uh, I don't think it's definitely not the one, and I don't think she's in it. Okay, so your year on this one is 1992. What? She was 12 years old. <laughs> She was probably not 12 years old, but yeah, uh, it's definitely before, a good while before you, Austin you, Powers. You understand the point that I'm illustrating. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, 1992. It's definitely a movie you've heard of, but probably have not seen. It is also, and I'm going to do a little inside baseball here, it is a movie that comes up when we play movies categories because it is a specific uh-huh type of film or like it's a specific locale for a film oh is it a movie that takes place on underneath or in water no but it's the other kind of thing um what's the opposite um, of like uh, underwater in terms of like air right oh is it an airplane movie Uh uh-huh movies that take place on airplanes um Ooh. Uh, what airplane movie was she in? Is it, like, explicitly an airplane movie or just, yes. like, a famous scene with an... Okay. No, it's explicitly an airplane movie. It's not Air Force One. It's not, um... Obviously, in 1992. What was yes. an airplane movie in 1992? It has a very famous quip in the trailer. It's not quite a quip. It's just sort of, like, he says it. Um... Uh-huh. It's not the tagline to the movie, but it should be. Uh. Okay. Maybe it was used as a tagline later. Hold on, I'll look. Um, he was a really big movie star of like that year, and then like within a few years, he had already sort of faded. Although he is in 
an ensemble. Well, there's a cent- he's, a, he's in a comedy that you and I both love with a central trio. Comedy that we both love with a central trio. A central trio, and then like a bunch of other like character actresses who we love is also in that movie. Oh, so wait, is the central trio all male then? Yes. Okay. From a guy who did an airplane movie. Three dudes in a movie with a bunch of character actresses. Uh, I don't know, man. Um, um, there are three dudes in the movie, but like, don't limit, don't limit them gender-wise so strictly. Are they? Wait, are they all dudes playing women, or are they dudes in drag? The latter. Oh, uh, to Wong Fu. Okay, so John Leguizamo, Patrick Swayze, and Wesley Snipes. 1992, it's not John Leguizamo. Patrick Swayze and Wesley Snipes are definitely both conceivably in airplane movies, but I, I genuinely don't think I know what this airplane movie is. Yeah. I know that there is... I feel like it would be more likely to be Patrick Swayze at this time, but I do know that there is a Wesley Snipes movie where it's like the poster is him and an airplane over his shoulder. So I think it's whatever that movie is that I can remember a poster from in video stores. It's Passenger 57. You had the right, you had the poster, you described the poster. It's Passenger 57. That's the movie. It sounds like one of those, like, era of under siege movies. Yes, it absolutely is. Jean Claude Van Damme things that i will never see he's an airline (laughs) haven't seen he's an airline security expert who is on a plane that gets hijacked and he has to take them down so it's it's essentially it's die hard on a plane in the strictest possible sense but that's the movie where he says always bet on black like in the trailer he says always bet on black which is the greatest uh yeah passenger 57 1992 co-starring elizabeth hurley I shan't be watching. Uh, you could have given me a Blade hint, too. Like, Listen, between Blade and Tu Wong Fu, I'm going to give you a Tu Wong Fu hint. That's yeah, just, that, that's, that's just very true. That's very true. I got to Wesley Snipes fast enough from Tu Wong Fu. Yeah, yes. Uh, excellent movie. First we bake the pies, then we eat the pies, then we go home. Uh, <laughs> and Joe, maybe we uh, should go home. I think that's our episode. Yes. I, I think that's it. Let's go. Um, uh, if you want more of this head Oscar buzz, you can check out our Tumblr at this headoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. That's the best place to uh, follow what episodes we'll be doing and get some hints about where we're going uh, and if uh, we're going to be doing anything exciting soon. Exactly. Um, Joseph, where can our listeners find more of you? Sure. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I'm also on Letterboxd uh, with the name Joe Reed. Reed spelled the exact same way. Uh, yes, and I am also on Twitter, um, shaking my groove thing at Chris V. File. That's F E I L. Also on Letterboxd under the same name. Uh, we would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Five star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So please be the DJ that saved our life last night. That's all for this week, and we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Bye. I said hip hop. I hit it to the 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 hit
the hip hip hop. You don't stop the rock to the bang bang boogie. Say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie, the beat. We're now ready for our general.